Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, where we are continuing our King Kong coverage um, with a film that pretty much has to be done right after King Kong, and that is The Son of Kong, which we will get into uh, as we go. But I'm not joined alone. I'm also joined by Jason. Hello, Jason. Oh, I'm phenomenal. I'm just happy to hear um, to be here to talk about um, this absolute classic uh, film that everyone loves. <laughs> yeah, uh, also, uh, maybe this episode will not be super happy. Um, oh, for no. those of you who are kind of unaware about the some of the backstory of this film, and especially some of the backstory with Willis O'Brien, uh, I do just want to kind of um, post a, a content warning, um, because, you know, uh, there is uh, suicide talked about in this, and then there is also um, a very uh, difficult uh murder and attempted suicide uh in this episode as well um not exactly a happy story as 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 we get into it uh which is kind of ironic as as this is a a film that was aimed to be uh much lighter in tone as as jason as jason kind of uh hinted at uh in all of king kong's illustrious history throughout pop culture there are few pieces of cinema less loved than the rush sequel son of kong it was released the exact same year as the original, and that doesn't mean you should write it off, because this is an important part of King Kong's history. And I think that that is what we will kind of yeah. be illustrating, because, you know, it is a King Kong film made with the ori- all of the original people, right? Well, most of them. With most of them, right. Uh, it, it, we'll, we'll get into that, but... This is uh, with the same creative team, which is something that will not happen in all of the rest of Kong's history. So uh, no matter how many times Marion Cooper tried. um, Yeah. So, you know, it's worth talking about. Um, A month before the release of King Kong, David O. Selznick left his position at RKO as the vice president in charge of production. And this position was taken over by none other than Marion C. Cooper. Which, um, you know, I think is really interesting. I mean, he I'm not sure this is a great position for Marion C. Cooper. Like, he's a guy who doesn't what we know about Marion C. Cooper and talked about at length last time. He's not a guy that wants to uh, stick around too long in any one place. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's very that's very prevalent, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of obvious as you kind of get into his entire tenure at RKO, which is very short. Which is very short. Yeah, very um, short. Um, nonetheless, because of course there was another war coming up. Oh yeah, he was all over that, right? He was. Yeah, like, of course, Mary C. Cooper has never met a war that he wouldn't uh, get involved oh, in. Yeah. Um, so uh, he that... was jumping straight into that flying freaking um, coffin and flying <laughs> off to World <laughs> War Two. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so because of this, uh, you know, the first thing he did when he was in the new role, he was like, hey, let's do a sequel to King Kong. Uh, and it was immediately accepted by the board. Uh, but the problem is they were like, well, you have 10 months to do it because they wanted the film to be re- completed by the 1933-1934 holiday season. This I mean, this seems insane and it is obviously, but at the same time, like Nobody knew what to do with a cultural touchstone as big as King Kong, right? Like, right. Yeah. Well, we'll kind of get we'll kind of get we'll kind of get into it. Um, but you know the the idea of sequels were really not like they are today, 
because we kind of live in that era of yeah. franchise culture, and that is not... Oh, really? I haven't seen a new film that is its own fucking, like, property for about 40 years. You know what I mean? I, so, I mean, I mean, King Kong now is in franchise culture, right? right. Like, and like, this is like, and like he's, this is a, a sequel that's going to be right near the, uh, even the idea of franchises right. and sequels and everything. And, like and that. what you do in business is strike when the iron is hot. Right. So I, I sort of, and obviously this film is a, a mess in many ways. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but I sort of give them a pass on this because I just don't think they knew what to do with a property as big as King Kong, right? Like they didn't know, oh, this is going to be around for years and years and years and let's soak it up. Let's put it back in the movies. And you know what I mean? Like they they didn't really understand how to market to something this big, I think. I think so. So they're just like, let's let's go. Let's get another one out there quick. You know? Yeah, exactly. And 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 one of the things uh, that Cooper was worried about is that there were going to be a whole bunch of knockoffs. Right. Like he kind of wanted to do another film before it was uh, knocked off and ripped off to hell, which is ironic because um, they really did not have any ability to properly um, yeah. do what Willis O'Brien was doing. Right. Yeah. That's sort of. Yeah, it's sort of weird to me because it goes against most of what I know about Marion C. Cooper. Like, you'd think, like, oh, nobody can do this shit better than us. You know what I mean? Like, knock off if you want. There'll only be one Kong. You know what I mean? Yeah, but now we're meeting the businessman Cooper, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so this is this is a different this is a different kind of of Cooper that we're kind of first kind of rearing our head at because we don't really know. Like, he was in charge of you know of that entire uh, airplane <laughs> fiasco, but yeah. he, he we don't have much details upon that because you know none of us are aviation historians. But right. um, but you get more of the idea that you know. He was like, oh, I want to make, we got to make sure we keep getting money off of this. We got to put another one out in the theaters. Yeah, I get it. There, there was almost like a parody that came out. Um, it didn't, it, it's actually considered a lost movie because it never got completed. But, you know, there were things that were kind of on the cusp. Um, but even, even now, like it would have been impossible for anyone to get something else out in 1933, especially. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he pretty much reassembled the creative team uh, with Ruth Rose taking the primary writing duties this time. And then Ernest Shodzak and Willis O'Brien were all kind of brought back in to make a whole new story. Um, neither of the film stars, well, one of the film stars, but the main characters from King Kong, both Fay Ray and Bruce Cabot, they were not interested in returning. They're basically like, no, we're good. We're doing other stuff now. And Robert Armstrong, on the other hand, was like all for it. And Robert Armstrong was denim. And this really was the, one of those times when it he was excited because he never really got to be a lead and especially not a romantic lead. And that's one of the things that Son of Kong kind of offered him. So he was kind of like really excited to do it. And we can sort of see why when we watch Son of Kong. <laughs> and like it's, it's, it is kind of funny though because, you know, um, he may be the only person who really has a lot of uh, good things to say about this movie because, you know, whenever they talked to him, uh, Robert Armstrong was always very co positive about this movie because it gave him a chance that he never got before. I, yeah, but it, I don't put all of the blame on him. Um, I, I mean, Carl Den Denham is the fucking villain of King Kong. Like, you can't, you're, that's like, 
you know, uh, I mean, that's like, let's make Die Hard 2 and Hans Gruber's the fucking uh, main character. One, I, I would be 100% to watch a romantic true, true. That'd comedy. That'd be a much better movie. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this when we actually get into the film itself. But I like these. I, I actually find the relationship quite cute. Oh, it does oh seem, I hard disagree. That's very funny because I, I quite, I, I am quite fond of this movie overall. As, as we kind of, I, I don't. Into. Oh well, I mean, okay, we'll, we'll get into it. Victor Wong, Frank Riker, Steve Clementi, and Lobel Johnson were all set to return as well. None of them really had as big of a role uh, as you know they did in the original. Lobel <laughs> um, Johnson just shows up on the beach and throws a spear and yells at them. Yeah, that's pretty much all he does. Uh, and I guess, like, Frank Riker, I pro- he probably gets more screen time as Englehorn in this movie overall because he's there. Yeah. But this movie is also a fraction of the running time of the original King Kong, and he's really kind of prevalent for that first half of King Kong. So it, it, may, be, it may be kind of splitting hairs because he might be just probably as probably about the same. Like, he's here a lot at the beginning of this movie, right? Like, he does yeah. a lot. And then he just kind of disappears. <laughs> He's floating in the water for the remainder of the movie, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The creation of this story, similar to the original, Son of Kong featured a lot of autobiographical elements from Cooper's own life. Not really much of a surprise there. Um, in 1924, Cooper published a journal titled The Sea Gypsy. Um, now, I, I, I realize that gypsy is a slur. Um, that is just the title of, of the journal. Um, so apologies. I'm just saying the, the title. Um, it's not a good word. Don't use it in your everyday life. Um, which involved his journey to the Abyssinian port of Djibouti with Edward Salisbury. Who we, we, we kind of talked about Edward Salisbury, uh, you know, way back, like in hour one of our 17-hour podcast on the original King Kong, but yeah. he, he, that, this was kind of his his early days uh, of, of adventure. Um, and he has a, a very apt description of Djibouti, uh, which really kind of mirrored how the Port of Decaying is in Son of Kong, where he says this, These dancers and the fly-ridden cafe are Djibouti's only amusements. Absolutely nothing else were those dancers like, monkey dancers i like, don't you know i you know no they were not monkey dancers this um, movie has a scene that is like if monkeys were in jabba's palace <laughs> jabba the there's one wearing a gold bikini one's playing the fucking <laughs> viola you like, know what i mean i don't know what the fuck is going on in <laughs> there's a bunch of people grown men Sitting around watching a tiny monkey in a bikini dance, <laughs> it is way. Everyone talks about how Kong, like OG Kong, is sexually um, suggestive of um, a ape. This is like um, inappropriate. In <laughs> I, you know, I really don't understand what's going on there. <laughs> but is watching this um, like I'm watching this movie with an absolute look of uh, astonishment and um, confusion. You know, and uh... <laughs> um, it is funny how you, uh, you know, it's funny how you kind of mentioned that the the romance didn't exactly work in Son of Kong because it is taken again from Cooper's own life because it's his romance with the actress jo- Dorothy Jordan. I mean, my, my problem with the romance is that 
um, denim is just creepy. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he shows up to basically convince her to fucking run away no, with him he, after no he doesn't he, no he doesn't he, does. he goes no reason no. For him to show up to be like i'm sailing out tomorrow and here's where my ship is unless he's like playing and i believe carl denham would have burned down and killed her father if um the other guy hadn't gotten to it first you know what i mean like no this is a changed denim I, I like this i like this because this is denim who is like much more open and much he's like he's very like you can tell that the the weight of what happened in the original King Kong is constantly on his he's, mind. No, he's fleeing the. He's destroyed New York City, and this film setup is: I've ruined New York City, and I'm getting sued, so I better flee before I get indicted by a grand jury. Which, you know what? I appreciate that in the sequel they actually, you know. Um, you know, address the damage that was done. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a good thing. I I'm looking at you, Man of Steel. Like, fucking, you do this much fucking damage to a city, the sequel has to address that in a meaningful way. Do you know what I mean? Um, but Denim's not the good guy. He murdered countless people. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> countless <laughs> people. And then this film has the gall, and then we'll get into it later, to then turn around and be like, this fucking capitalist uh, pig destroyed the entire city, and aren't the commies bad? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Okay, so um, so with so little prep time, the creative team kind of dipped back into the original script from creation, the aborted project, which resulted in much of King Kong. The now lost 1927 film titled The Enchanted Island was stated to also be a major influence for the plot. Uh, the problem with that is like that film does not exist anymore, right? So like I was yeah. able to find a lot of uh, people saying like, oh, it, it really resembles this film, but I'm pretty sure all of us only have general plot descriptions to go off of, and I'm, yes. I'm a little cautious to, to make any accusations without actually seeing the film because, you know. And, and as we talked about in length, like any information you have about Kong has to be like triple verified because everyone has different stories, you know? Right. So, and that's, and that's why I like the fact that this is like a lost film, just, it makes yeah. it impossible to double verify. Exactly. So I just want to, yeah. I just want to say that. Um, but it did actually begin under the title of Jamboree to prevent people from flock, flocking the production. Now I'm trying to figure out, could this be the very first time a, a film went under a pseudonym i mean it must have been very it's still early on right like yeah so, i'm a, not aware of any other film prior to this one doing that um, and, and, and this would become like a very uh prevalent form of hiding a sequel or hiding a big production like uh, you know thinking of uh you know star wars um and i believe it was return of the jedi that was blue harvest i believe yeah. I believe that's true, yes. Yeah, and, like, this idea of, like, once uh, a film hits a cultural uh, zeitgeist, they don't want to shoot under the actual title in order to kind of make sure that, you know, a bunch of gawkers and a bunch of people don't just kind of, like, flock the set and be like, we gotta see the real Kong! Where is he? Show us the Kong! Um, as, you know, as you do. Um, the, the, the title of Son of Kong may have been influenced by the movie uh, Son of the Sheik in 1926, um, as that was a sequel to a 1921 film 
titled The Sheik. Again, it could have just been like, hey, he has a son in this one, so it's Son of Kong, right? <laughs> like, it's just, you know, just it's, 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 not, it's good to denote that this was not the f- very first Son of movie, at least. I mean, you, you have 10 months to make a second blockbuster film and you're going to be borrowing shit. Like you're going to be pulling shit all over. You know what I mean? Like um, that, that's why I really don't give um, much flack to like Ruth Rose. I mean, she must've been under enormous pressure to write a whole new script incredibly quickly. You know what I mean? Um, and and shoot in shooting it as well. I don't really um, shoot. It's like, I don't give a lot of, uh, you know, guff to as well for this film. Like, I just think it's, um, it's a lot. It's a lot to do in a really short period of time. So I believe that they're gonna pull titles. You know what I mean? Like you gotta have call, and you gotta work Kong in there somewhere, right? Like how are you? Right. Gonna, you I know what? Like I, mean? I I wouldn't even say that that's like a stealing of the title. It no, just no, 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 be, no, no. Because you know everything from you know uh, Chucky to Godzilla to everything has son, uh, sequels that are son of or seed of or. Or anything like that. I mean, Son of Frankenstein was an, another yeah, big one. For so sure. it, it, it's just uh, it's it's kind of interesting to just kind of try to figure out where exactly the Son of pseudonym for sequels kind of originated, and it may have been this movie. Son, but of I'm Sheik. sure if you're thinking of Son of Chucky, you're actually borrowing. You're not borrowing from Son of the Sheik. You're borrowing from Son of Kong, probably right. Like you well, and that that one that one yeah. Most most of those later um, Chucky movies are kind of going from more Frankenstein. But yes, but, but, but Frankenstein definitely gets it from. You know what I mean? Like yeah, oh yeah. I, I, you know, that's why it's worth talking about this film because I think it sets a lot of trends. A lot of them, I don't think, good trends, but they are um, sort of set by this film in some ways, you know? Right, right. And the the one element of the film that is a little unclear to me as to where it has its origins to is the really hardcore anti-communist leadings, which just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, and the film is, like, not subtle about this because there's, like, a mutiny... <laughs> And the mutiny occurs on the venture, and the person who leads the mutiny is an actor named Ed Brady, who in this film plays a character named Red. Okay, there you go. Uh, he calls them the bourgeoisie. Um, they make a direct reference to the Russian working party when everyone is, like, coming up to, to Denim, and Denim's like, oh, Ingelhorn looks like the Russian working party is coming over. And then after they do the mutiny... Uh, the the all the mutinies are like we have moved beyond captains and I was like okay yes. like hell yes I am on these are the heroes of this fucking film first of all they are um absolutely correct they're not getting paid enough certainly not paid enough to travel to a fucking monster island right um and for some half-assed fucking treasure that um nobody knows actually exists or not. And, um, you know, this is just fucking stupid, right? Like, you've gone from Carl Dunn being like, I'll never go back to Skull Island to 10 minutes later, let's go to Skull Island. And they're like, well, fuck out of here. Yeah, no, it's fair. It's <laughs> I, I do also, one of the things that I, I actually like this, and I, I respect this mutineers even more, is they throw the other dude off, too. Yeah, Hellstrom, because Hellstrom is <laughs> yes. like, I would be the new captain. And they're like, get the, get the fuck out of here, Hellstrom, you piece of shit. No one likes you. 
Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of came up due to how, uh, you know, Shodzak and Cooper were really not a fan of Russia. Um, you know, if well, you remember, is, you know. if you if you remember, he was a uh, Cooper was a prisoner of war by the Russians in yeah. the aftermath of World War One. Probably led to some hard feelings. I've got to guess. Um, but despite these clear anti-communist leanings, it is worth noting that the NRA that appears in the opening of the movie is not the National Rifle Association. The National Recovery Association which was introduced by the then-new president, Roosevelt. Um, And this NRA was set to help end cutthroat business ideals and practices and aim to kind of create a more fair working environment. And it actually resulted in abolishing child labor and got rid of things like the company store, which savaged workers at the time. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird that, you know, NRA... It, at this point, in the regards to this film in particular, um, was like, a, hey, we should be better to our workers, and that's what we should do. Maybe that'll help us get out of this end of this Great Depression. And then, this, and then Son of Kong is like, fuck the commies. Fuck you. <laughs> it's like a very weird, like, mis- mixed message. Um and yeah, I've I've like every once in a while you see a review online where they're like, "Oh, Son of Kong, sponsored by the NRA," and I'm like, "No, it's a di- it's a different NRA. It's, it's different not the NRA, same." Right. They would have they would have taken support from the NRA if they could have, but they didn't need to. Um, I, what I don't understand about these commies, at, is- Son of Son of Kong does at one point uh, hold a gun and shoot it. So yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. they are teaching Absolutely. Kongs how to shoot. <laughs> I don't understand why they're throwing Charlie off this boat. No, Charlie, Charlie left his own. Charlie oh, they, left okay. on his own. Okay. That, that's so what Charlie the act shows to go with um, the capitalist pig. Um, well, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I mean, like, I'm going to guess the so, the sailors were probably pretty racist, so I, I think maybe yeah, well, I mean, probably. The, yeah, like Carl Denham wasn't. Oh, like Carl Denham wasn't, but he at least is, like, a part of the crew. Anyways. <laughs> I think he literally calls him good boy when he brings the gun on the fucking boat, too, by the you, way. You are right. Oh. You're 100%. Like, Carl Denham definitely demeans Charlie the Cook at every yes. single point There's... of this movie. <laughs> um, but. But yeah, so but Char- but in the in the movie, Charles Charlie left on his own volition okay. and snuck off a few uh, guns. Poor decision so. on Charlie's part. Well, maybe he thought Hellstrom was still going to be in charge. I don't know, right? Like, I mean, maybe if like if once Hellstrom gets thrown off the board, he'd be like, "Wait, wait, wait! I'll go back up. No, no, yeah, take me back up." Great. Like, I, I, I would have respected <laughs> the fuck out of Charlie if he was like, "Nope, nope," and taking the good rifle with him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, all of these elements were combined for Ruth Rowe's first draft, which was just made in just a few weeks. Crazy. And and again, like we got to keep in mind when they set out the the budget for the film. The film was given a really was given a, a, a minuscule budget of two hundred fifty thousand, which was a far cry from the original film. Um, and you know that is because in these days they were not bl- like sequels were not blockbuster hits. Every time someone did a sequel back in the day, they were just trying to get a few extra dollars from uh, from the public, and it was never really made into like a big to do. I I kind of I wonder if <sighs> Bride of Frankenstein may have been the thing that ch- helped to really Maybe. change this because yeah. that was 1935. Um, and 
I, I do wonder if maybe that was when uh, sequels kind of started to have a different meaning, um, but that's just conjecture. And, no, um, and nobody at this time is thinking about legacy, right? Like you have a really no. like short, you know, it's early in the days of like blockbuster films, right? Like you. Well, and they just tried to destroy all copies of The Lost World, right? Like they, <laughs> they are definitely not thinking of ne- legacy because they're like, oh, we're going to remake Kong, destroy all of the old ones, right? Like that, like that, that's what they did for The Lost World. Someone thought that they were going to do like a, a new remake of The Lost World, so they <laughs> ordered to destroy all of the copies. And, and I, so, think yeah. it's, I think it's, um, it's hard for us to imagine, I think, um, a world where you see a movie once in a movie theater and then you may never see it again ever or have the ability to see it again. Right. Like it's not like in five years you can just revisit it on a whim. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and what what is interesting is because the big numbers that King Kong did, they did actually end up reissuing it a number of times, but that sure, was not sure, sure. like the norm. That was not yeah. like the norm. Right. Like, so, and you can never be guaranteed that, um, you know, especially, especially in these days. Well, and um, you're fronting a lot of money, right? Like you're, um, you have to go through the process of having the picture house show it and book the time and all of that shit. Right. Um, with the hope that people turn out to watch something again. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and and because of this, they did have to kind of tone down many of the set pieces to do the f- final film. And uh, this would end up with uh, less dinosaurs. So that is a ma- Yeah, boo, boo, hiss, boo, hiss, less dinosaurs. Uh, and that led to a lot of uh, anger from uh, Willis O'Brien. As, 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 as you know, as we kind of will we'll continue going on. Because O'Brien really wanted to do the dinosaur stampede. The dinosaur stampede was introduced back in the original creation, and they finally put it and wanted to make it into a reality for Son of Kong. And then as soon as they cut the budget, that was one of the first things. They were just like, nope, no more dinosaur yeah. stampede. Can't do it. Um, and I, I think that that is really where the weird dinosaur stampede and Peter Jackson's King Kong comes from. In that film, it does not work very well, uh, like especially the effects. Like the effects don't really stand up well because it's just like a bunch of brontosaurs and, you know, you know, Jack Black running running around with a camera and it's like the CG just doesn't go well. But I think that the that idea was originating from, from this idea that was in creation, Son of Kong, and never yep. saw the, the light of day. Yep. There is a dinosaur stampede-ish in uh, The Lost World, so if you want to see what it might have looked like, you can always hop back to that classic film and uh, ignore all the racism. Except don't, but it's very racist. That yeah. film's very bad. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say about Peter Jackson's King Kong is I, I really don't love that film. I mean, I don't hate it. Oh, but I, I like that film. Yeah, I know you like it. I mean, I just, I, I, I like it okay, right? Um, the one thing I'll say about that film is he definitely put a lot of effort in trying to do what couldn't be done then, right? And realize the uh, vision of O'Brien. Right. And and that's like to, to that could be easily said as to a detriment to the film. Um, sure. Because it but is so slavishly I... <laughs> um, devoted to that, um, you know, because, you, know, you know, as you're we talking about, like the spider pit sequence was cut for yeah. a reason. And when you watch Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong, as amazing and as horrifying as that scene is, it, it slows down the 
film, right? Like, and it does yeah. exactly what <laughs> Cooper said it did in the original 33 film. Right, which is just but at the same time, I appreciate him um, having that slavish devotion to Willis O'Brien, uh, his vision, you know? Yeah, no, of course, of course. Um, along with the dinosaurs kind of getting diminished, they also remove the t- return of the native wall and the village, with the natives only appearing on the beaches of Skull Island for a very brief scene. Which is just, uh, you know, we, we you briefly talked about it, but yeah, that's the entire appearance of Noble Johnson. Like, Noble Johnson, like, arrives, throws a spear at them, and Denim is like, wait, I thought you guys would be happy. I thought you guys would be happy I'm back. What do you mean? I, I sort of love this because it just makes me feel like they're hiding in the trees, like, we're going to get these white motherfuckers. Get them! Get them! <laughs> <laughs> I I love it because Denim goes in like yeah man I took Kong away from them they'll love me they'll yeah, love me the and then fuck? like they they show up on the beach and like no dude you fucking destroyed our village yeah and the then fuck? took our god See, this right is what I'm saying like Denim has learned nothing <laughs> I mean he He's is learned but he's... nothing but he, he is only learning. feels sorry for himself being sued like that's what you know I mean you're not wrong you're not wrong that he's kind trash. Of... Uh, yeah, but it's fun. He's fun to watch trash. Um, <clears throat> anyways, um, they even removed any sequences that involved travel, right? Like, there was no jungle trek in this movie. It pretty much goes from, like, one location to another location uh, with little uh, distance in between. Why do they believe that there's actual? Why does he just buy right into the fact that there's treasure on this island? I don't— Because he's desperate. I, 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 I kind of come up with it because he's just desperate. He never has to go back. Well, he wants to, though. Yes, he doesn't have to, but he wants to. like you ever. You destroyed and murdered countless people's fucking children, wives, and husbands and left them crushed under a giant fucking gorilla so that you could, you know, nobody likes you. I mean, you're right, but also, like, maybe. Maybe they, they bought a nice house or something. <laughs> no, um, but but it is worth noting. Well, it's worth noting that all of the things that you are saying are is the reason why most people, when they try to do a sequel to Kong, they completely remove this film, right? Like, this film is not well-loved in the, even in the Kong uh, fan- franchise sphere. Um, like, you know, Godzilla vs. Kong came out, and the director of that, Adam Wingard, said that he watched all of the movies except for Son of Kong and King Kong Lives Again, right? So, like, these movies are not well-loved even amongst Kong super fans. Um, and I do think it yeah. is for a lot of the reasons that you that you are talking about, right? Like, how, how does it really make that much sense? <laughs> it's just sort of, I mean, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I know we'll talk about the script a little bit too, but like there's, um, tonally it doesn't mesh either with a Kong film, really. This feels a lot like um, jokier, you know what I mean? Well, right, because, uh, you know, that's what Ruth Rose did because Ruth Rose was like, all right, it's lower yeah. budget. I'm going to make it funnier. Right. Yeah. Like, and that was really what she focused on. And I think for me, all of those comedic beats and like the charm of it all kind of gets me through on this movie. And I like, I end up really going along for the ride. Sure. It feels like um, a screwball comedy kind of. I, I always say that comedy is one of the things that age ages the worst. Um, Especially, um, you know, especially for more racist type of comedies. But like, even even the way that we tell it, even the way now that we tell like a joke does not really fit with how they would tell a joke in the '30s, right? So, screwball comedies are not for everyone, and I can kind of understand why they wouldn't be for everyone. But I am always charmed by that mode of comedy, and uh, yeah, I just don't buy that she would like this dude at all. 
that's like my big problem is she's she's very charming yeah you saw about how big of a loser her dad was right like well, it's just you know that, just, that was just uh, i mean that the acting in this film um is uh about 15 ticks down from OG Kong oh, as well. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that. That scene where he's getting drunk uh, is rough. Rough acting. This time around, Marion C. Cooper was too busy in his new position at the studio, and as such, the entire film was directed by Shodzak. How much do you think that plays a role with this movie? Like, do you think that if they're both there, that there's a better balance in terms of the thing is though like i mean like i guess um i guess one of the things that probably made king kong was that editing period right because yeah. and that was the point that Marion C Cooper was the most involved right because sure. most of the, his in the original kong he oversaw all of the uh effect sequences right um and all of the like the normal human sequences that was Ernest Shodzak and Shodzak was like infamous for like being a super quick filmmaker, right? Like he he did not take a lot of time. <laughs> he basically would show up, he would show up, be like, "Hey, let's shoot this," and then continue on his uh, continue on his day, right? Like he he worked at a record pace, and I wonder if that element of uh, Cooper not being around, especially, yeah. I don't know how involved he was in the editing process, but they didn't have much time to edit even, right? Like, considering how quick this film had to go out to theater. So, that w probably did play uh, a fair uh, fair role. It just feels so rushed. Like, it feels like, um, it also sort of feels like two different movies in a way. Like, it's almost like first half screwball comedy, second half, um, you know, effects monster mash kind of a little bit you know right right yeah exactly exactly and and i guess because of that the, the because they they weren't as split between different directors it just kind of all goes at like a record pace right because it, it the film moves at a pace that moves at a pace similar to the pace that showed sack shot at right because they always talk about him like showing up shooting and going home and like that is exactly the pace that this moves at it goes super quick <laughs> and goes from one to one to one and like you know there's not a whole lot of time in between and at the same time this movie's like an hour and seven minutes or something and it feels right. like 17 hours no no you're, you're insane you're insane. i had you're to take insane. a break in the middle of watching this film yesterday oh, it's like an hour long it's like I, the length of an episode of house and i had to take a break in the middle of it the behind the scenes crew was mostly maintained from the original king kong and among the returnees were matt painters mario laganaga and brian crabby I would say the map paintings are one of the things that are like still like super top notch and impressive in this movie. Oh, totally agree. Yeah. There's not there's not a whole lot of them, but I, I think like some of my favorites are like when they are land landing on the beach to have the encounter with the natives. This is a beautiful matte painting. And then they really kind of when they, they land onto the into the port of Decaying, there's a lot of really impressive matte photography there because mm. um they didn't have much of the budget right like they had to they didn't have the budget to make big sets so they had to kind of expand that with uh with the matte paintings and that also includes like the camera like the glass paintings and stuff like that as well yeah and then we're going to talk more and more about the uh, effects as well um but i think most of the effects are good i mean you you're reusing a bunch of stuff right um but you're also doing some new stuff as well um 
And I know it's missing some of the imagination of the original Kong. Um, but even so, some of these fucking um, effects are really cool. Like, I really like some of these um, fights that uh, Son of Kong Kiko gets into, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think some of the some of the reasons why those effects and these opticals work well is because they also have a lot of the returning camera crew. So people like Eddie Linden, Vern Walker, and J.O. Taylor also returned. So, you know, that kind of uh, level of people who understood the movie they were making probably made it so that those effects uh, really hold up as well. Due to the lower budget of the movie, Cooper actually offered profit participation as opposed to raises and everyone who got profit participation ended up making more money on son of kong than they ever got from the original kind of impressive right well yeah i mean that just i think that sort of shows um more that they got screwed on kong than it does. well that's, <laughs> you're right you're right well you're right because like again like a lot of the actors did not make too much money off yeah. of king kong they're crazy yeah, we kind of really got into that last time. Um, I wonder if I they, there wasn't any like number of value uh, attributed to uh, Ruth Rose this time around, but I hope she got paid more. <laughs> like, yes, this time she got paid thirty dollars, oh, as opposed so to the twenty bad. she got the first time. So bad. That was such a bad fact last time. Oh my god. <laughs> um, the actress uh, who was the love interest was Helen Mack, and she was only twenty-two years old at the time of filming. And other than her and the villain of the picture, John Marston, who played Hellstrom, um, there wasn't a lot of, like, new characters that had a big influence on this plot and were kind of, like, sticking around. Um, Hellstrom is actually mentioned in the first uh, King Kong because uh, he's, like, they mentioned buying the, the map off of him when they're, you know, pl- plotting their course, uh, which I thought was cool. Like, I thought that was pretty cool to, like, bring back a character. Cool. I would never buy anything from this fucking guy, though. Like, let's... No! Right. He sucks! Like, Hellstrom's such oh, an asshole! Such and, like... A... But so is Denim. They're, like, perfect for each other. It is, it is true. Like, it's like two con men meeting up and, like, <laughs> kind of doing, uh, doing their con men, right? Because, like, I mean, if Denim was in his place, he would also have tried to start a mutiny and take over the ship. We right. all know, exactly. right? Like, I feel like the only difference between Hellstrom and Denim is, like, the amount of booze that has, like, infused in Hellstrom's veins, right? Um, I think I like Hellstrom, though. I think he's a fun character and a fun villain, especially in that final half of the movie because there's a whole bunch of scenes where, you know, he's he thought he's gotten the better of them when they're mutinies and he's like, ah, oh, smart man like you doesn't need a gun. And then as soon as he gets mutinied as well and thrown off the thing and they all end up on the island, uh, he asks for a gun. <laughs> and then Inglehorn is like, oh, smart man like you doesn't need a gun, right? And like, I think that's like one of the strengths of the, uh, of the script writing because there's a lot of quippy dialogue like that. And I enjoy yeah. that, so. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, I think Helen is pretty charismatic. Like, I think she's um, pretty decent in this film, in a film that I think is kind of weak in the acting front. I think she's um, a nice addition. Yeah, no, she's she's, uh, hugely charming and extremely effective in in her role. It is unfortunate that a few of her screams actually get dubbed over by Fay Rays in this movie, which is kind of... Uh, yeah. 
weird. I don't know why they did that. But, well, I kind of know why they did that because what what we were talking about at the time of like people misconstrue how important Fay Ray is to King Kong and they think right. the scream is what really it was, but it right. was a performance. Right. Ridiculous, right? I, I feel yeah. like that's like a studio decision, right? Like you have to have Fay Ray scream in the film, you know? But yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, it's one of those things where the uh, the amount of sources for Son of Kong is much lower because it's got way less uh, yeah, nobody people. Nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we'll get into we'll get into why some people don't want to talk about it. Okay, there's a reason. What do you think? Feyre was paid for that scream to be reused? No, 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 God, no. That's crazy. That is crazy, right? Yeah, because I think like, it just became property of RKO. It's like that's a, a insane. Sound. Like you think it's that important to the film, but she also doesn't get her just, uh, her, you know, her as just far, desserts. As far for as that. I know, there's like no residuals on King Kong. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. In order to make the titular son of Kong, Marcel Delgado recycled the 18-inch King Kong armatures from the earlier film and used the exact same techniques for building the puppet. Uh, reportedly, there were three of them made. Um, you know, I, I kind of saw that bandied about that number. Uh, it seems like I guess maybe there's three. I don't know why they would need to be three because it seems like you probably could get along with either one or two. But, you know, I saw I saw reports that said uh, there were three. So that's good. To, that's good to know. Um, you know, and again, uh, you know, I, there's no real point to kind of get to all the nitty gritty of how they built <laughs> Son of Kong because, it's the exact same thing they did to build King Kong, right? So if you're interested, uh, you know, go back to that 17-hour podcast we did about all that stuff. But um, whenever in the future, whenever anyone talks about running into puppets from the original King Kong, they're actually puppets from Son of Kong most likely. Um, and that is what really kind of survives. And, you know, especially in, in the RKO storage, a lot of those original yeah. King Kong puppets were kind of taken apart from king kong right because again marcel Delgado was like yeah I, I made this thing now i'm gonna build like i'm just gonna take it apart and put new stuff on it right like it just yeah i don't blame them and they and they don't have any time either right like they're well right and and it's not history yet right like it's just a movie they made right like king kong is just a movie they made so it's like all right cool like there's, there was no idea like that there would be anyone like Bob Burns, who is the one who actually has the original King Kong armature right now, right? Like the the idea of collectors were really not a thing <laughs> in that period, right? Um, I will say I really um, like the design of King Kong in the sense that like I sort of dig a cute Kong. You know what I mean? Like a little cute Kong that like hangs up. It makes no fucking sense how this works out. But like um, the design of him I think is cool. Yeah, they did a lot of things to kind of, like, make him more expressive and cute, like using yeah. wider eyes, a rounder head, and a larger nose. And then what do you think about, like, the white coat of Kiko? I thought that was really interesting because it, it really does kind of differentiate him from Kong quite a bit and yeah. quite extensively. Is this even Kong's son? Like, maybe we should I ask that. Know. I'm just curious, like, is there a mother? somewhere like i don't i don't understand like why is kiko the only one hanging out and like <laughs> the introduction of denim rolling up and being like hi kiko and they don't call him kiko but hey son of kong i'm the guy that murdered your pa <laughs> so fucking ridiculous and he's like oh, okay like, what? <laughs> Fuck him. i didn't like him anyways that beat like <laughs> 
might as well. Like, cause we, like if if you are to imagine that, like, the son of Kong is existing in the world of King Kong, like, what a dead beat. Oh, oh, my dad's stealing another, stealing another girl, leaving me alone. I can't come back to the the mountain hideout because dad tells me to stay away. My dad said he was going into the jungle for a pack of smokes and never came back. <laughs> Oh my god. Can you imagine what like OG Denim would have done if he'd come across like Son of Kong? He'd be like, "Ah, let's chop off his head so his dad'll come at us faster." Like, <laughs> like they that's, all would have just Listen, that's that's why this movie ends the way it is. Just to fucking who knows where he's ending up if he stays alive. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, one of the things about the fur is they actually decided to actually treat it this time so that they would kind of avoid the fingerprints of the animator appearing on screen. Yeah. Which, you know, is, I mean, like, is good from a technical standpoint, but like a lot of people uh, expressed in the original King Kong, that did kind of give Kong a little bit of life. So <laughs> I, I do I do think he looks good still. Like, I don't, um, I agree. Nothing for me will ever beat the original Kong. Um, the way he looks and all of that stuff. Um, but I, I still think he, he looks good. He looks cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, I like him. I like him. Um, you know, this time around, there was no big full head bust, which kind of makes me believe that, like we kind of surmised last episode, that they did mm-hmm. just destroy it, like, right after. Ridiculous. Because I don't know why they wouldn't have reused it otherwise, right? Like, you'd think they would just die it. Like they just used diet white or something if they still had that giant bust around, but I guess not. But they did, they did actually fully redesign the big hand from King Kong and made it kind of to resemble Kiko. And I think that one actually works pretty well. In like one of the only like the the big hand only appears for one sequence, and it's just so that yeah. you know Denim can wrap a piece of a girl's dress around his wound which you know i don't i don't know how effective that would be but you know it happens in the movie so stupid the styracosaurus which was actually cut from the original film got a chance to make its bring screen debut this styracosaur was one of the actual surviving puppets of the film like it can still be seen today um they last kind of brought it out of containment i guess i guess you could say in the uh, king kong documentary rko production 601 which is on that king kong blu-ray and it's amazing it's an amazing documentary but basically what they did in that documentary is they were you know peter jackson and crew wanted to recreate the fight the spider pit sequence using technology from the 1933 kong so they actually did an x-ray of uh, <laughs> of this puppet in order to see how it was all constructed and everything like that and honestly it's in pretty good shape i was kind of surprised um because really this puppet is not just a surviving thing from the original it's also a thing that's surviving from creation because they didn't actually build any new dinosaurs for king kong um so this this dinosaur has been a long uh, and been around a long time, right? Yeah, and it looks great in the film, too. Like, I, I think it looks great. It, most of these puppets look phenomenal, I think. Yeah, I, de- I definitely I definitely agree. Um, they also had the brontosaurus, and the brontosaur really just appears for one scene in the movie. Um, he just, like, when they're fleeing the the 
Skull Island as it's kind of like collapsing under the waves, like he lifts mm. like a single arm, right? Like you just, well, not a he- an arm, but you just see the brontosaurus head like come up and it's like, and like it goes under the ocean. In the movie, I actually thought that that was a thing. I, I thought that was the sea dragon returning, but no, that's actually the brontosaurus just popping up and it was like, hey, I'm here. Oh, now I'm dead. <laughs> now I'm dead. One more fucking place that Carl Dunham is responsible for genociding. <laughs> Think about that. They showed up to the beach. The natives throw a spear and say, get the fuck out of here. And they sail around to the other side of the beach and then just kill everyone. <laughs> it's true. Oh, <laughs> including yeah. the natives. <laughs> just like a white man. Yes, just like a white man. There are actually three wholly new creations that appear in Son of Kong. And that's the giant cave bear the dragon, and the sea serpent. All of these kind of put the film more in the realm of fantasy than it does prehistoric. Again, this is all Marcel Delgado as far as kind of making these new creatures. And it's just, what do you what do you kind of think of these? Because they are not, like, most other Kong material, uh, other than, I guess, you know, I guess the one that's kind of closest to this is probably Kong Skull Island because all of those are like more fantasy creatures as opposed to prehistoric. But what do you think of the creatures that are outside of the realms of dinosaurs? Well, God- Godzilla vs. Kong definitely goes in that territory as well, um, if you think that's about fair. it. Yeah, no, um, that's fair. I'm fine with it. Like, I, I mean, it's not King Kong himself isn't like a true... And you know, animal that existed in, um, you know, the real world in prehistoric times, right? So it's not like you're, it, you're already in fantasy territory as far as I'm concerned in some shape or form, right? Um, I know that there's some Kong purists who probably would debate that. I just I think it's silly to draw the line at like a giant gorilla, gorilla uh, god is fine, but a giant cave bear is too silly. Or a yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a weird it's a weird thing that people kind of like draw the line. They always people in one of the weird things about King Kong is people are always drawing arbitrary lines, right. like when it comes Correct. down to yeah. Kong. Um, you know, and you know they push up their glasses and they're like, wow, dragons are fantasy land. Well, yeah, so is a giant gorilla god. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean. I think it's fine. I think this cave bear is fucking rad. Um, I think the dragon looks really cool, in my opinion. And the sea serpent's my least favorite of the three, but I think it's just, um, I think it's all pretty cool. Like, I'm I'm down for some fantasy monsters on Skull Island. I wish there was more of it. I, I think the opposite is the problem, not the weird fucking cave bear, you know? I'd love right. to see some more weird fucking monsters in this movie. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, there are actually two versions of the sea serpent created. One was actually a me- mechanical model similar to the brontosaur in the original film, and the other was actually built, uh, like, was a large articulated head and neck that was built over the armature for the brontosaurus neck and head that actually killed the crewmate in the original film. Um, so it is kind of funny that I think like they, they were really kind of going off of all these ideas and techniques that they knew would work. And all sure. of these models were built up in the exact same way that they were in that original film. You don't have time to uh, play games, right? Like you don't have time for something to go wrong, really, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. They only really had to create like two 
human dummies for this movie and uh they they create well sorry they they created a dummy of hellstrom because all that hellstrom had to do is just get completely owned by a sea serpent like it's kind of amazing like it it's more puppetry than it is thought motion because like i think that was like the right. articulated head just grabs the dummy and just goes yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and i'm like yeah fuck you hellstrom you piece of shit uh, but denim was actually animated and the animation on denim looks pretty good. I was going to sure. say, cause like from a, from a perspective of, you know, as we've kind of discussed, um, uh, human animating humans is one of the things that not every stop motion artist really gets right. So, uh, because again, it's, it's, hard. it's about the creatures, right. And it's hard because we know how a human walks. Right. And also like, it's about the creatures really, right. Like we all know yeah. that. Two Human dummies, denim and Hellstrom for sure. <laughs> now you're writing. Now you're writing notes like this film writes a script. And that's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> unlike the original film, there were no new pioneering elements that were kind of discovered, and optical effects in particular were merely refined, not reinvented. And I think that's an important thing to note because much of the opticals there are opticals and there are elements of this film that are better than the original and that's only because they had more time to refine the techniques they didn't have to invent it like they did for the original film right that's what's it's, it's one of those interesting things um when they actually began filming they started on the same venture interior they had made for the on the original RKO path a lot mm. but they only had like a little bit of time to shoot here because the set was sold as soon as, right after filming began <laughs> and after Christ. losing the set they they did all the other boat scenes on an actual boat and i again like it's one of those things where like nothing went wholly right for this film yeah. because i would imagine they the the, the filmmakers probably wanted to use this set more right like they had more scenes that were inside of like the venture interior but they they don't on the actual movie because they got sold i mean i think it's important to understand that making a film is a process where you have a whole bunch of ideas in your head and half of them aren't going to work and you have to work around them right like that's so you know and and that's being generous usually it's like three-fourths right so to have this such of a short time period especially you know, what amounts to a special effects heavy type film or should be um, is pure madness, I think, you know, even if you're reusing all of this other stuff. I, I know I'm hammering this part point home, but it's just I think it's really important to the story of Son of Kong that this turnaround for this film, um, I think to a certain degree, and I've been I've been um, heckling this film all the way through for the most part, but at the same time. It's sort of a miracle they got what they did out of this film for the time they ha- were given, you know? Yeah, yeah. It is it is it is pretty impressive. And, like, mo- a lot of it is, like, really impressive when you kind of get into more of the the, the, the making of, right? Because they, they had to go to Catalina Island to do a lot of, uh, a lot of the shooting. And mm-hmm. for those who are not, like, familiar with movies, like, Catalina Island is a mo- – is, like, a – is an island that's located right near Los Angeles, and a whole bunch of movies are shot there. 
Um, and that's where they did the like the scene on the beach of the natives confronting Denim. And they also did the port of decaying there too. And they had to be really creative, especially during the, the port sequence, because they had to really stretch their budget and use a lot of force perspective in order to kind of showcase the venture in the background and kind of like make it seem larger and more alive than it was because it was like super small. Um, they when they actually had to go in the interior and do the weird monkey dance, um, they did that <laughs> in a show tent that they put up uh, at the Warner Brothers Ranch in Calabasas, California. Can you imagine but, just walking into that tent not knowing a movie is being made and there's just a fucking monkey dancing in a bikini? You're like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? <laughs> Apparently, that was a hell scene to shoot because the monkeys were extremely difficult. Yeah, to do play. you know how hard it is to get a monkey into a bikini? <laughs> I mean, like, and you know how, like, uh, probably abused those monkeys were? Oh, like, my I'm God, just that's guessing. all I was thinking about. I'm just <laughs> guessing. Like, it, what's nice about all this I'm... is, like, they didn't do anything I... super bad. Like, the monkeys look okay, but, like, you know, those monkeys did not have a good time. When I rewatched this film yesterday, I was laughing hysterically when she comes in to find the tent on fire, and she stops to let the monkeys out first before she goes rescues her dad. That's how she feels about her dad. Her dad is in the middle of the fire, right? His, her dad... <laughs> we didn't even talk about the fact that her dad got hit by the <laughs> bottle, right? And then... The... <laughs> Once by a bottle on that. But once by a gets. bottle, and the fucking tent gets set on fire. She comes in, sees the tents on fire. Her dad is surrounded by fire on the verge of going up in flames, and she stops and lets every animal out first, and then runs over to get her dad, who dies. Who dies from the single hit in the head with the bottle. And then they go on a boat together. And basically, it's forgotten after one minute. Like, you killed my father. Yeah, yeah I did. And then it's like, move it on. Well, yeah, so Hellstrom is the one who killed her yes, father. Yes, so Hel- excuse me, yes. Yeah, so Hellstrom and her father were drinking. They had a weird yes. talk about something. Like, it got was like a really dub. He's like, oh, don't call me a loser for losing my ship. I'm not a loser. And he's like, you're a loser. You're a stupid loser. And he's like, how dare you call me a loser? Kabam! And like, <laughs> bashed him on the head like it was an old western and he just dies. Jesus Christ. Um, Hellstrom is to her father as fucking Denim is to Kiko's father. <laughs> You're actually right. Like, that is kind of a through, through line. Uh, everyone's father is getting murdered. Get murdered by someone and then they're just all hanging out. Fucking yeah, crazy. exactly, exactly. Um, it's it is kind of funny. It is kind of funny, and it, and it sucks that she does. She isn't the one who gets Hellstrom, right? Like, yes. wouldn't that been more fun? Like, That'd if she amazing. had like, if she had like shot Hellstrom, or just let him get eaten. Like, she could have saved him from a monster and just lets him get eaten. That yeah, great. yeah. They just kind of Hellstrom. Just they're just like, oh yeah, Hellstrom has to die. Uh, a dragon shows up. <laughs> like, yeah. they just shows up. I'm like, come on, anyone could have killed him. But again, right? she wrote like, this in two weeks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, she didn't uh, have much. A couple more really. polishes Everyone... in this film. No, no, no. Better. Yeah, of course they just had to do what they they could. But it just kind of yeah. sucks. Um, the interior sets uh, were all done in the United Artist Studio in Santa Monica. Um, the jungle sets. There was a bar, a basement kitchen, a hallway. And Denim's sitting room were, like, really the only interior sets created for the picture. And, you know, that's, like, not <laughs> – there's not many, right? Like, especially when compared to the original King Kong where there's a whole bunch of elaborate sets. And, like, this one is a really 
really a contained picture in, in a lot of ways. So uh, everyone says it was a, a happy set, though. Like no one really had any complaints. I mean, Ernest P. Schoetzak didn't hit anyone this time, so that's good. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it also seems like it's probably really breezy, right? Like we're running through scenes. You're not getting fucking Kubrick getting 700 shots, you know? So if, like, well, you're, yeah, exactly. you're kind of like onto the next thing, onto the next thing. You know what I mean? So it's probably a lot more fun for an actor, I would guess, you know? Yeah, probably, probably. Um, during the production of the film, Cooper eloped with his, uh, his girlfriend, Dorothy Jordan. And they, uh, they got together and they, you know, they made marriage they made marriage um they were married marriage you can't say that any more awkward than they made marriage (laughs) and that's not in the notes that's me awkwardly (laughs) saying and they made marriage um but yeah you know that's that's me old marriage maker um oh and also in september of 1933 he had a massive heart attack he probably saw this (laughs) probably what happened no I, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he has a massive heart attack in September, uh, which is, which is a bit surprising, um, you know, probably made him maybe kind of, you'd think that would make him tone down his adventurous lifestyle, but as soon nah. as World War II hits, nah, yeah. uh, doesn't, like stop, say, doesn't really stop coffin, it. Going to bomb some Nazis, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's, uh, he's, 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 he becomes like a brigadier general in World War II. Like, it's insane. His stuff in World War II is nuts. Oh, we'll get into that another time. Um, they use the exact same methods to make the miniature sets as they did in Kong, uh, but they really only built eight miniature sets. Again, not too many. Uh, but for all of those, you know, people who are all over the size discrepancies in the original Kong, all of the sets were scaled for Kiko being 12 feet high. And guess what? Throughout the entire production, Kiko was 12 feet high. So, you know, are you fucking happy? Nitpickers. All right. Yeah. yeah Clearly yeah. made for a better fucking film. All right. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> well, he didn't have any time to get bigger. Right. Like, cause he's just like, he's in the same spot. So it would have looked really weird if like one scene, he's like 50 feet tall and he like goes down. It's like, oh, like yes, we know. Denim came back to take out the child after murdering the father. <laughs> And the miniatures were all built on stage three at RKO Hollywood. Okay, we've had a we've had a lot of goofs and gabs, um, you know, and kind of we had to get those out of the way now, because uh, we're about to get into Willis O'Brien. Oh yeah, this is gonna be dark, and and um, you know, we might try to keep it a little bit light, but like this is there's no you know we're you know this is tough. It's literally impossible to keep the story light. But anyways, uh, let's let's go on this. Okay. So first off, Willis O'Brien had no love for this project because as soon as they kind of limited the scope, uh, he was not happy. And then he had to deal with another issue, which was the fact that Cooper and Shotzak were like both wanting to take a more active role in the miniature sequences. Ugh. They more or less left O'Brien alone on the original King Kong. Um, you know, there's there's always stories about you know, Cooper kind of being like, ah, I did all of this. But, you know, it's clear that they kind of took a more of a backseat approach because they really didn't know how this was all done, right? So there was this added level of O'Brien would understood how this process worked and he was given a bit of freedom. So these fucking um, clowns made a movie and Willis O'Brien 
created some of the greatest. Everyone was like, these are some of the greatest effects I've ever seen. These are the greatest effects I've ever seen. Incredible, incredible miniature work. And then these two fucking chuckleheads were like, we better start meddling in what what, what happens for the with a minute from the miniature standpoint. And I think I think that's why I think that's probably why Kiko is not like there's some like tonal inconsistencies with yeah. Kiko yep. because like even in the middle of like a, a an intense fight with a bear he'll like bash his head and be like whoa 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 yes yeah and it's like jokey yeah. almost yeah yeah and like it's like well he's kind of fighting a giant bear like I don't think you'd be like a whoa silly Billy <laughs> when you're like trying to like, yeah there's not almost die. like um. There's almost like one of those like clay. There's almost like the feel of like Santa Claus is coming to town. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, yeah. It feels like, um, you know, the, the bumblebutt thing is like kind of jokey, right? Like it's almost that kind of feel. Yeah, exactly. And like because of uh, because of all these issues, like O'Brien just kind of withdrew from the project. He stopped adding his little touches, and he just stopped making creative decisions. Right. And he just did every scene that he did exactly as ordered. There are some reports that he didn't animate any of this movie. Um, And then he stopped showing up to work altogether. And sometimes he was away for weeks at a time. I mean, he was going through a lot as well. There's a there, yeah. As we as we get into this, like, there's a lot going on in Willis O'Brien's life, and I think like a lot of that stuff was kind of boiling over to this. Right? <laughs> I mean, like, fucking little Kongs are the least of Willis O'Brien's concerns at this fucking point, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but like, as a result of him being away so often, uh, E.B. Gibson animated the majority of the film himself. Gibson was the one who actually animated King Kong climbing the Empire State Building in the first film. So he was like a very skilled animator. And the animation in this movie is quite good. But the fact is, this was not really a Willis O'Brien movie. Yeah. And O'Brien was not happy about Gibson, you know, animating all of this stuff uh, in his absence. But like, again, like, what were they going to do? Right. Like, E.B. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about E.B. Gibson. Like, we would have had, like, no options, right? Like, if you want to get this film out the door, he's got to start animating. I mean, I don't think there's any problem with E.B. Gibson doing what he did, and I think he did a great job. But, you know, if, if, uh, you know, I'm running a film and one of the integral parts of the the man who put us all on the map, right, um, is going through what he's going through, I think you should be able to stop and say, okay, let's just chill out a minute and let him handle shit. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know. That's just, I, I guess I'm one of the fucking commie boatmen, but that's just kind of how I'm, I, I feel about it, you know? Yeah. Um, but Son of Kong did make extensive use of glass paintings and also used a lot of miniature projection like it did in the original film. And what's funny is one of the background plates that featured like a sequence of like animated birds flying was actually used in Citizen Kane. I mean, the uh, you say birds flying, they're pterodactyls. So, no, yes, no, they're yes. birds flying. No, they're pterodactyls, my they're, friend. No, um, I went and watched this sequence today. Um, it, it, I think it's pretty clear that it's canon that Citizen Kane has dinosaurs in it now. Well, there you go. I guess we're covering Citizen Kane next week. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of funny, though, because, you know, Citizen Kane was an RKO film, right? So, you know, this is right in the period of RKO. This mm-hmm. is just a thing that they had in mm-hmm. stock. So they just threw this background plate in and just like, yeah, hey, it's the Everglades. There you go. What if a pterodactyl had killed Mank? Then I think... <laughs> 
Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz dead by a pterodactyl. <laughs> much better ending to that film. I mean. <laughs> it's a um, much better film. <laughs> when they needed to kind of make Kiko look wet, like when he's covered in the like the the quicksand and everything like that, they actually covered the model in glycerin, which was kind of cool. Uh, mm-hmm. And they those things actually look quite good. Like I think the the like the hem being trapped in the quicksand and everything, like you know, looks good, right? Yeah, I, th- I think it looks great. I mean, I don't really love the sentence "make Kiko look wet," but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> I think the effect works. You know, I'm not in love with that sentence, but it you know it exists, and you've heard it, and it's in your ear now, and you can never forget it. <sighs> All right, well. Let's get ready. Deep breath, everyone. Okay, everyone, stop laughing. And again, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, like, this is where the content warning is gonna, gonna hop in. So if you're, if you're aware, you know, be aware. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Willis O'Brien was not at a good place in his personal life. His son had contracted a tubercular infection leading to his blindness, which meant William never saw his father's work on screen. Accompanied with this, his current wife, Hazel O'Brien, contracted tuberculosis herself. Willis and Hazel were separated, but were still officially married during this period. Uh, But it was not a happy marriage by any stretch or imagination. Uh, And in order to cope with her pain, Hazel was prescribed a medication that dulled her sense of judgment. I'm mentioning that because I'm not exactly sure what the like no place exactly said the medication prescribed and i was not able to kind of i i ideally uh as we kind of get into the story ideally i would like to understand what they would have prescribed for tuberculosis at the time just to kind of see if there's anything that might explain what what was going to happen here because on october 7th 1933 in a fit of depression and insomnia hazel shot both of the children and then herself um she attempted to commit suicide by shooting herself in the chest and because of where she shot herself which was in one of her lungs uh it actually ended up draining her infected lung and made her live longer than was expected. One of the last memories of Willis O'Brien and his kids was when he brought them all to visit the set. And because of this, I can't imagine this was a movie he would ever want to talk about again. During the aftermath, Hazel O'Brien survived this. And during the aftermath, she had to be force-fed by hospital interns as she just refused to eat and she died over a year after the original incident on november 16th 1934 so fucking crazy uh, such can't... a it's such like a huge like i can't even imagine it's like one of the craziest things that i imagine sitting in the hospital and having to watch for over a year the woman who's murdered your children and um Shot herself as well, um, admittedly under an incredibly difficult circumstance. But still, Willis O'Brien has to sit there in the hospital for a year and look at the face of the person who's murdered his children. Yeah, well. it's interesting. There were some reports that he never visited her, okay. but, there are other, but there were other reports that he did and Even that he would he go there. He has to just think about the fact that she's alive in the hospital, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I, I, again, 
she was going through some very tragic things as well. I'm not excusing the fact that she's a murderer. I'm just saying um, it's a very complicated situation, um, and it is crazy. For all intents and purposes, um, their relationship was extremely volatile. Like, it was not a good relationship. Uh, that does not inc- excuse what was happening, but there was nothing yeah. stable going on in this. And one of the reasons why I'd be interested to know what uh, medication she was to, to yeah. Uh, what medication she was prescribed is that I just don't know what what kind of uh, what kind of medication it was, right? No, no. That I mean, and I can't emphasize this enough: we're not doctors. <laughs> you know what I no, mean? Like, no, we're Christ. very, very stupid people, and we have no idea why this would happen. But um, it's very tragic, you know. Yeah, very tragic, and the tragedies don't stop there yeah, for Willis O'Brien. This dude, man. <sighs> During during the you know the year that she was in the hospital, um, in this horrible horrible situation, um, he briefly dated another woman by the name of Hazel Rutherford, and Miss Rutherford was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she ended up taking her own life at the end of nineteen thirty three. Whew! Right, like again, all of these. Yeah, that's tough. This. I mean, but I'm I'm assuming she was going through a lot of pain, so I I'm assuming that you know, um, again we don't know, but she took her own life probably out of um, being through a lot of pain, maybe as terminal, you know, who knows? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, like there was there was some uh, inklings that there was maybe a, a possibility of a life saving surgery that she didn't want to go through, or and like I don't know what that surgery would have looked like at that time. What's a life saving surgery? You know, and I, mean? I don't know if it would have been life saving. Like right, like there's a lot. Again, like it's a lot of medical history, and medicine was not exactly uh, really great at that time. Right? And maybe so. just want to stay away from the name Hazel. You know what I mean? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, you know, and that's tough for me the, to say. That's the, one of my daughter's names, you know? When when Hazel O'Brien died in 1934, uh, Willis finally did get a stroke of good luck, marrying Darlene Prescott the day after Hazel's death. Uh, and their marriage was extremely happy and lasted until his, his eventual death. Um, they were married for about 30 years, right? And, you know, that, again, that's, the only probably happy memory he has during this incredibly terrible time. Yeah. And, you know, um, all while them being like, let's hurry up and get this movie out. You know, that's kind of what I'm saying. Well, um, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it, by, by 1934, the, the movie was long done. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But, because they were, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. Money hungry. Because, right? like, uh, October is, like, October is right near the end of the production. And, and um Yeah. And I don't know all the circumstances around him, like, you know, marrying somebody a day after she commits suicide, you know, so I'm not going to. No, 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 not the day, not the day after she committed the day with his original wife died. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. When Hazel O'Brien eventually died in 1934, like the, his, the Hazel Rutherford passed away at the end of 1934. Gotcha. 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 November of 1934 was quite a quite a ways away after that so, gotcha yeah. so she's in the hospital he's like i gotta move on um so i'm gonna date a woman with the same first name um and then she dies and then a day after his original wife who murdered his children dies he you know marries somebody else 
right? Yeah. That's the timeline. Yeah. I'm not passing judgment. Yeah. I'm just want to make sure no, we no, have no, the no, timeline. No, 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 no. It's just it, yeah. again with with two Hazels being in the mix, right? And it like, gets confusing. Yeah. The the amount of tragedy like that you have to kind of wrap your head around, right? Like this is kind of like a confusing time, and not surprisingly, is... O'Brien does not ever talk about this movie. Yeah, of course, not. of course, of course. You know, this is really like the level of tragedy that you think about, like in a character in an Edgar Allan Poe story, or you know what I mean. Like this is insane, insane. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's worth noting when when O'Brien wanted to make uh, another film featuring King Kong, which was you know King Kong versus Frankenstein that he wrote himself. Uh, this film was not involved in any of that plot. Nope, nope. That yeah. plot doesn't like that. He uh, did not want to even think about this. You know, there there are some reports that you know, when you know Ray Harryhausen was working with him on Mighty Joe Young, Harryhausen might have like brought it up once, and like he just refused to talk about it. And like you know, Harryhausen was like, okay, sorry, I just because I think he just like asked a question about it, and then just mm-hmm. Brian just kind of was like, no, we're not talking about this. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I can, you know, that's fair, right? Like that's fair. And then King Kong vs. Frankenstein eventually becomes King Kong vs. Godzilla, right? So. Yes, yes, exactly. We'll we'll get into that uh, eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> not not a fun story, and also not good for O'Brien because no. O'Brien gets royally fucked there too, yep. and then dies before that film even gets released. Um, Will yeah. O'Brien does not have a great life, no, right? Like he has a lot of hardship, right? Like even even when he was young, he ran away from home, basically, right? right. Like there's all these. All of these things, uh, it's it's a very tragic life for Willis O'Brien. Um, and going back to the movie, I guess, because, again, we're talking about Son of Kong. Uh, the, the miniature work did end in late October, which is, like, again, less than a month after the horrifying stuff with Willis O'Brien occurred. And he requested to have his name removed from the project. Uh, Marion C. Cooper denied this request. And, and this is the thing that sticks with me because that tells me that they know his name means something, right? Right. And also, we got to keep in mind that I don't know what state Marion C. Cooper was in at this time. True. Because right? this Fair is October. Enough. This is a month after he had a horrible heart attack. So <laughs> I don't know if he was like on like excessive painkillers or whatever that may I mean... have like made him not not be as you know pro uh doing anything or being all there but regardless though like it it's a bad look like, yeah bad. i mean come on just let the dude move his name they're not as he's not asking for much he's asking to be removed from the project because you know he didn't do a lot of work on it like and and yeah and again no positive memories for the son of god for uh, so at all at all Ted Chessman returned as the editor of the film. Uh, Maurice Spivak also returned, uh, providing the iconic roars for Kiko. Uh, they used his chatter was all from baby gorillas, and his roar was a mix of tiger and elephant roars uh, slowed down. Uh, we also got a whole new score from Max Steiner, which, you know, good. There's uh, there's pieces of score that like are really really iconic and and really uh you know interesting uh nothing that really gets that original no it doesn't uh, hold the candle to the original no 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 especially not because max diner's score for the original king kong is one of the greatest movie scores so for sure it's hard to kind of uh you know 
go could meet up to that. The film was eventually released December 22nd of 1933. And keep in mind, October is when the miniature stuff ended, right? Like, that is so short of a runtime to get this thing out into theaters. And uh, nobody liked it. It really, uh, you know, when you when you look up uh, Son of Kong, nobody is a huge fan of this film. Um, and again, I can't. Yes, I love this film. Okay, I yeah. love it. Okay, sue me. But uh, even even when uh, Marion C. Cooper wanted to kind of come up with another title uh, or another sequel, uh, which was kind of The Adventures of King Kong, uh, RKO just said no. Like, mm. and and so did Ernest P. Strodzak. They're both like, nah. We're not interested in Kong anymore. Um, and it was almost made into like uh, a comic book at one point, but this version never really saw the light of day. Uh, the script is actually kind of interesting because it would have been like an interquel because it would have involved the venture stopping for repairs on an island while they were transporting Kong. And then the crew would be attacked by monsters. So they would have to release Kong to fight the monsters and then recapture him so that they could go for the final act of King Kong, which is weird. so fucking cool. It does. It does. Like, and again, like I'm, I'm really surprised no one has really kind of jumped on this idea because it's, uh, it sounds really fun. Um, it does seem a little weird that it's like all like they stop, they get attacked, they release them and then they capture him again. Like, I guess maybe they would have made it more interesting than that, but um, still, oof. Uh, it is worth noting that, you know, everything that happened between Marion C. Cooper and Willis O'Brien, they did reteam for Muddy Joe Young. So in mm. 1949. Mm-hmm. So that was post war. Um, so I, I, it doesn't seem like, um, you know, uh, O'Brien had any ill intent towards any of the men. Or, but. or maybe he was just really desperate for money. You know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, you're kind of right. You he know? really did not have much luck right. uh, post post this. Um, uh, he did, oh he did also work on like uh, Pompeii, like a few of the other Cooper joints that were made in this area too, yeah, like yeah, right uh, after. But anyway, we yeah. we don't have anything on record for how the two men felt about <laughs> right. each other. Right. That's what I will say. Maybe um, there was another proposed sequel that actually included a crossover with Tarzan. Um, and that actually did end up becoming a novel in 2016 by author Will Murray. Um, but all of these ideas were kind of in this, this weird period of Kong that just things that were never meant to be because, uh, son of Kong was just not really well received and people didn't think it had legs. Have you ever read that novel? No, not yet. I'm just so confused as to what the fuck Tarzan would do with King Kong. You know well, like, they were they like they were all for uh, combining Tarzan and and one ape <laughs> yeah. because Marion C. Cooper even wanted to combine him with Mighty Joe Young. I just um, don't understand like, like what they think Tarzan would do to King Kong. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Like I don't like I think they just like want them both swinging through the jungle. Like I, <laughs> I get it. I get it. They want a shirtless man and an ape swinging through the jungle, but like. I feel like this would be like Godzilla vs. Bambi, you know? I mean, hey, they did make that. Yeah, well, no, I know, I know. I'm saying, like, it would be like that three minutes of fucking Kong just grabbing Tarzan and pulling his head off, and that'd be the end. But, you know. Right, right. Maybe there was, so there is actually a movie called King Kong vs. Tarzan that was made, mm. but it was a Bollywood film, 
And King Kong is actually uh, was actually just a wrestler in that. <laughs> but that sounds but, delightful. But the movie ends with King Kong fighting a man in an ape suit, and it goes on for an extremely long time. <laughs> and you could tell they did not have a second take because a fly literally runs like is on the lens of the camera, like rocking around as they're fighting. Uh, it's really it's really fun. Holy uh, shit! An intense fight. Uh, it's so it's it's very bad. It's a very bad looking uh, King Kong costume. But you well, know, that makes me want to watch it more. Of course, we'll cover it for this. What are you talking can't about? Of course, wait. we're gonna cover can't it. Can't wait. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, even though I have literally no behind the scenes information. I'll we always like, say that, and we're like an hour and a half into this fucking podcast. Shut <laughs> <laughs> All of these proposed Kong sequels can be really detailed in Kong Unmade by John LeMay, uh, which is a really great book. And John LeMay does a lot of like really good, uh, you know, making of uh, stuff. And uh, he's a really good author and a very good research author. So uh, if you're into research, uh, definitely check out John LeMay. In 1934, Marion C. Cooper left his position at RKO. And that's the story of Son of Kong. That's the story of Son of Kong. And like, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, as a whole, I like it still. I'm really, I'm kind of into the madcap nature. I love that it's only 69 minutes, right? Like it's super short. Uh, you could watch this movie four times and and what it would take to watch one Zack Snyder Justice League, uh, you know. Like, and I you recommend know. you don't do either. I, I recommend uh, you watch Son of Kong four times. Um, <laughs> I I just like where it sets up, like, all of these, like, people process surger servers try to, like, make make Denim show up for court, and he's getting sued. And I love the, like, the back and forth. Just... Denim is, like, is, is I he's, he's again, like, I understand, yes, he's a scumbag, but he's a lovable scumbag. I find I, him very I charming. That part. I, if this movie treated him like a scumbag, this film would be much better. Like, if this film was, like, everyone thought he was a scumbag and treated him as such, um, and he was sort of, like, underhanded and slimy, I think this would be a much better movie, is my right. proposal. Like, if, if he's just doing this shit and everyone's like, you fucking scumbag. I, I, I like it. I like the idea of redemption for Denim. He doesn't really earn it. You murdered countless people <laughs> in New York City. You do not deserve redemption. I'm sorry. Hey, everyone tries to redeem Darth Vader at the end of every Star Wars movie. It doesn't work that at all. So I don't know why I try to say it. What do you think of that? Like, what do you think about the fact that Kiko also dies? Like it's like, like it's so sad. He's just like you know you go through all the stuff. You're like oh yeah we're all loving Son of Kong, and then he just gets caught in a fissure and just dragged underwater to yeah. drown in like who, one of the worst ways to die. Yeah, who killed the beast this time, motherfucker? You <laughs> rode his hand into his watery grave so that you could fucking survive. Yeah, but then, <laughs> as soon as they got the boat, it was like it was the Belle Helene. She killed him. truly this woman I kidnapped from her (laughs) island and stowed away on my fucking ship slaughtered Kiko (laughs) I you you see that monkey in the bikini it was all her doing (laughs) I you know man like I really can't get over what a piece of shit denim is I, I just like he literally comes back and just he starts and murders everyone in the city and then he travels back to skull island to finish the job on them like that's 
the I mean it does seem that way like I don't know I don't know if like maybe him stealing the treasure or whatever started this whole cataclysm okay then he's still responsible because he fucking came back to steal that was his that's what he intended to do is he murdered everyone he first stole the stole Kong Brought him back to New York City, murders everyone, it gets into financial trouble, so then decides to travel back to the island, which caused the problem so he could steal more. That's that's his character arc. Three out of five stars. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I think if you just treat Carl Denham like the piece of shit he is, I, and he doesn't get the girl at the end, because that part's really weird, too. Like, he is really weird. They're on this ship. First of all, they're on the ship in, like, a hurricane? What I'm thinking is they get on this ship. There's no way they're surviving this. They're on, like, a rowboat, right? But, yeah, but then they get rescued instantly. (laughs) And then they get on the ship, and and she, like, has to convince him to move in together? Yeah, basically. Basically, she's probably like, she's like, well, when when we get back, they'll have no interest in me. And then he's all like, well, I guess I have these nice diamonds. Let's make out. I literally thought she was saying a split three ways. Like they're gonna, There's no way Charlie's getting any of that fucking money. <laughs> no, no, or Inglehorn. Inglehorn's not getting <laughs> shit either. Fucking... You know it's just like Denim's just going to like Inglehorn and be like, hey, uh, didn't we get all that treasure? And uh, Denim be like, oh, treasure, I can't hear you. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, no. What did you think of his his disguise? We didn't mention it. Do you like to get out of the fucking tenement houses? He puts on a bucket on his head and overalls. That was the greatest disguise. (laughs) And then the process server is like, "Yes, this guy got his head stuck looking down into this." Freaking bucket! I gotta take him away, and the and the, like that person talking to him is like, "Oh yeah, it makes sense. Oh yeah, one of those bucket heads. Yeah, it happens all the time." I'm really confused by the process server in general. Like, what was his game? Like, he shows up to tell that he's gonna be indicted in the, by a grand jury. For well, because he reason. he was happy that he was working, right? Because there there's an element of this was like really in the hardcore area of depression right like the depression had gone real sour at this point Mm -hmm. everyone everyone thought that roosevelt was going to kind of turn around and everything was going to be hunky-dory because again is a politician trying to get elected uh and as soon as he got into office he's like oh shit there's like there's not a there's not a switch i can flip to to stop the depression Uh uh-oh so like all uh, like um so like the idea that he the process server was indebted to denim because he was able to work for a few months i think was probably where they were going like it's a great depression like this guy without denim would not be able to have any work being a process server even though he's like incredibly creepy in his first oh. first appearance I, he, he's like yeah. I don't even know he think he was like saying he was going to sell the woman like it was very <laughs> weird it was very uncomfortable I'm but surprised like, I think... Denim didn't go for that <laughs> I mean <laughs> ah no you gotta find a monkey and you gotta put it in a brazier that's <laughs> yeah. a really bad idea right. um, but like I think the idea is like oh Without denim, he wouldn't have got made any money in this time period. So he's like, oh, I feel bad for the guy, and I'll let him go. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, seems pretty thin to me, but you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. You know. Um, right. It's kind of it's kind of funny because this movie seemed to kind of be written in a way to acknowledge the depression, because it brings denim down to the being the everyman, and it kind of acknowledges the 
that level of depression. Um, you know, King Kong Cometh has like a really interesting article on that. But it, but the the thing is, the original King Kong really helps people forget about the depression because right. it's not super focused on a depression. And this one is kind of a lot more uh, focused upon the kind of the economic disparities, even though like it's referenced in the original King Kong, but it's like kind of like, uh, oh, I, we're escaping de- the depression era and we're going on this magical adventure. Right? Yeah. Like it's almost the original King Kong is almost in a way structured like the Wizard of Oz, where it's like, oh, you're going out of this, this yeah, down way and you're going to this magical world where son of kong it's like yeah the depression's fucked us over we're fucked we're fucked we're fucked we're fucked oh there's maybe treasure here all right i guess we'll go right like they're never Mm. there's never as much a sense of uh we're doing this for the sake of adventure for the sake of art it's all for commerce right it's funny you make that analogy about the original kong because sort of um the way the wizard of Oz uses color Kong uses the score, right? Yes. So, yes, like, when exactly. you reach that magical point, you get that incredible, iconic score um, swell into the frame, right? Whereas, like, you know, Wizard of Oz, you come out and the Munchkins are dancing and all that stuff, and now you know you're in a magical realm. Can um, you can you imagine what Carl Denham would have done if he ended up in Oz? Oh my God, he would have fucking enslaved all those Munchkins and had them <laughs> in, <laughs> in bikinis. On yeah. The <laughs> You're in the, pinch, um, you're in the picture sure. business now, lollipop kids. <laughs> Take a camera and go. Which go. is ironic because that's essentially what happened to the real fucking little people who did The Wizard of Oz. Um, fucking, yeah, that's definitely what it would have done, right? Yeah. yeah. He would have He'd, trained those flying monkeys to fucking swarm and kill everyone in New York. He would have, yeah, he would have released the flying monkeys on New York, <laughs> charge $10 a head, and then destroy New York. <laughs> <laughs> they fucking fly away with the Empire State Building. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, is that Wicked Witch of the West? <laughs> she she did it. Not me. You see that Truly, wo- see those- it is a witch that killed the you, New York City train. You see the ruby slippers on that lady? It was her fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. any 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 final thoughts on Son of Khan? I mean, I, I think it is a film that is worth visiting for... If you're... If you um, are fascinated by the story of Kong, it's a it's a movie I think you have to see at least once. Um, I, I just don't think it's um, I, I think it's both not a good film and also sort of reviled a little too much. Like I do think it's ridiculous and stupid, but it's not and is a little boring, especially the first half. But I think for me at least, um, but I don't think it's the worst. You know, I I think it's. It's fine. It's an hour and nine minutes of stupidity. It it may like I'm trying to think of like where this would stand in my overall King Kong opinions, and honestly, like it, it, it I do like this film a lot, but it's probably on the lower half of King Kong's oh, overall sure. filmography. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, you know what exists? The Mighty Kong. You ever see the Mighty Kong? Uh, I'm sure I will see it. It's the unauthorized musical version. Um, Starring f- fucking, it's like a musical, like a kids version animated oh. in 1998. It's really, <laughs> really, really bad. It has like one of the worst uh, songs in existence. Um, 
I and don't know. We does... watched um, a Ninja Turtles uh, Christmas no, special. No, it's much worse. <laughs> it's much worse. Come on. <laughs> it also stars J- Dudley Moore as, as Denim. As Kong? Oh. No, as, as well, actually, apparently it does say he's also uncredited as King Kong. Oh, there so you go. maybe he <laughs> makes King Kong. Did Dudley Moore just make this himself in his basement and he played all the roles? <laughs> Fuck, you might as well have. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Anyways, it. of course I'll make uh, Jason watch it. Um, anyways. I think at the end of this we should rate our Kong films, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be down. I'd be down. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, we have 5,000 films to go, so, you know. <laughs> we, we don't have that many films to go. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, Jason, where can we find your work? Oh, on the you know, I have um, my podcast, Moments of Madness, which, you know, I'm working on a season two right now. Um, uh, Generation to Nation is a music podcast with my daughter. And, you know, on on the interwebs, on uh, Twitter, uh, bad attitude 86 on Twitter. If you want to follow me for some reason, um, I'm there. Yeah. Sounds good. If you're a fan of this podcast, feel free to email us at milkkicksandemotions at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at winemovienerd. Hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, thank you and goodbye.